Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and this week, as most weeks, you won't see my face, but you will hear my words. And as you know, my favorite way to kick off a show is with a review on Apple Podcasts. And as it happens, we've got one of those to get to right now. A Winner by Linvent. The reader is excellent. The stories are well chosen. Even within the limitation of having to use non-copyright texts, most of the stories are well worth a listen. Best of all, there is no buzz fuzz, the plague of so many podcasts in this program. We get no bells, whistles, and congratulatory pats on the back. Good job. Well, thank you so much for the review, Linvet, and uh, sorry for the bells and whistles in the uh, review there. And remember, if you want your review read here on the show, it's easy to have that done. Just head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. I will read and produce every review I see. And if I don't see yours, give me a heads up so I don't miss it. All right. Remember last week when I talked about changing the name of the podcast? Well, the results are in for a new name. I put a poll on Facebook and Twitter, and a few of you even emailed in to vote, and the results were very close. Only one vote separated first and second place, and only one vote separated second and third place. Cobwebs from an Empty Skull came in a distant fourth, but I still can't help but love that name. The third place title was Weathered Pages, which is actually the option that came in first on Twitter. The second place option was Moonlit Tales, which won the poll on Patreon, but the overall winner and the future new name of this podcast is Ink and Ash, a short story podcast. And so now, of course, comes the work of commissioning a logo, getting my hands on some new merchandise for current and future patrons, and completing the whole rebrand process. I'll keep you posted right here about the timing of when the renaming and rebranding processes are complete. But speaking of patrons, thank you to my current patrons for your support. And I'm talking about you, Nick, Dan, Moxie, Kayla, Ken, Alan, Rob, Nate, Julio, and Vanessa. Thank you so much. And if you want to join the ranks of the elite patrons of Stories of Your and Yours for as little as $2 per month, head over to patreon.com slash syypodcast today. Bonus content is available to all levels, including the latest edition of Simply Stories, which just dropped last week and featured The Room in the Tower by E.F. Benson, an author that hasn't made an appearance on the main feed just yet. And don't forget, you get access to The Turn of the Screw, four other editions of Simply Stories, and the bonus trivia show Spot the Lie, which is currently on hiatus while we replace our good friend Ryan from Conspiracy Theoryology. And more bonus content, a new edition of Simply Stories every month, and extra stories too long for this format that I'll present between seasons. And that's just the bonus content. Head over to patreon.com syypodcast today and see all that you've been missing out on. And now, let's hear the latest from the Searchlight Recipe Book. Remember, this is a new segment that debuted a little while back, excerpts from the Searchlight Recipe Book published for the first time in 1931 with the 19th edition, which is the one I have, being published in 1946, and discovered by my mom while she was going through her mother's house after she passed earlier this year. So thanks to Granny for holding on to the book for long enough that we still have it. And yes, my grandmother did go by Granny. A moment with the Searchlight Recipe Book. This week's recipe, Whorehound Soft Crack. Ingredients. One and a third teaspoons pressed whorehound. 1 and a quarter cup boiling water, 1 third cup white corn syrup, 2 cups of sugar, and 1 eighth teaspoon of salt. Pour water over whorehound. Allow to stand 10 minutes. Strain. Combine sugar, salt, syrup, and water from whorehound. Boil to soft crack stage. 
275 to 280 degrees Fahrenheit. Pour in thin sheet onto well-buttered baking sheet. Mark into squares before candy hardens. This has been a moment with the Searchlight Recipe Book. Well, now that we know how to make some whorehound soft crack, let's go on to this week's story. The story comes to us from Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne was born on July 4, 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts. His father, Nathaniel Hawthorne Sr., died when the younger was just four years old. He'd been a member of the East India Marine Society and died of yellow fever in Suriname. The family lived as boarders on a farm and then later in a home built by Hawthorne's uncles before Hawthorne was sent back to Salem for school at 15. Hawthorne attended Bowden College in Maine, and he became friends with other future well-known Americans such as poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, future Congressman John Silly, naval reformer Horatio Bridge, and future President Franklin Pierce. Hawthorne's career bears some resemblance to many of the authors I profiled here in that he published a newspaper of sorts when he was a teenager that he distributed to his family, and he served as an editor of a magazine early in his career. The magazine was called the American Magazine of Useful and Entertaining Knowledge, which is one of those fun novel names of early magazines. But as opposed to many of the authors I've talked about before, or at least it seems like it's been a while since I've profiled one like this, Hawthorne seems to have lived a pretty happy life. He had a long and by all accounts happy marriage with three children, worked as a public servant while writing on the side, and as such seems to have made a pretty comfortable living. He worked as a weigher and a gauger at the Boston Custom House, later was appointed the surveyor for the District of Salem and Beverly, an inspector of the revenue for the Port of Salem, during which time he was busy enough that it was hard for him to write as much as he wanted. He was also appointed as consul in Liverpool when his friend Franklin Pierce became president. As for his writing career, Hawthorne started out selling short stories to magazines, but his first published work was a novel that he published anonymously entitled Fanshawe. His second novel, published 22 years later, is his most well-known work, The Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter is a good example of the style with which Hawthorne is heavily associated, called Dark Romanticism. Dark Romanticism is usually a kind of cautionary tale that suggests guilt, sin, and evil are the most inherent natural qualities of humanity. This is no coincidence if you look at Hawthorne's heritage. His great-great-grandfather was John Hawthorne, one of the judges who oversaw the Salem Witch Trials, and the only judge who never offered any regrets for his involvement in the trials. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne's name was actually spelled without a W originally, that's H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E, before he added the W after the A, so H-A-W, Thorne, but it's speculated that he added that W to distance himself from his notorious ancestors. Now, back to Hawthorne's work. The Scarlet Letter was one of four novels that he called his four romances. These were the only four novels that Hawthorne published in addition to his short stories, myths, and legends, of which there are about a hundred. That doesn't include the novel that he published anonymously or the three works that were unfinished at the time of his death. Hawthorne died at the age of 59 on May 19, 1864. Today's story, The Minister's Black Veil, was published in 1836 in the Token and Atlantic Souvenir. This was a book that was published annually, and it contained stories, poems, and other light and entertaining reading. The books were ornately decorated and were meant to be given as gifts. The annual started out as just the token in 1829, but it merged with the Atlantic Souvenir in 1833 and ran as the token and Atlantic Souvenir until it ceased publication in 1842. Hawthorne published stories in three different volumes of the token and Atlantic Souvenir. All three proved to be popular among the reading audience, but none of them featured Hawthorne's name. But in 1837, one Horatio Bridge was reviewing that year's edition of the token and Atlantic Souvenir for the Boston Post when he said of Hawthorne, 
It is a singular fact that of the few American writers by profession, one of the very best is a gentleman whose name has never yet been made public, though his writings are extensively and favorably known. Horatio Bridge, of course, was a friend of Hawthorne's, but his praise was nonetheless genuine. As a side note, if you want to see the cover of the token and Atlantic souvenir, I've got a picture up on my social media, I believe it is posting tomorrow, and that'll be on all three, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at SYY Podcast. You can follow that at any time to see that and any other pictures that I post during the week. Well, now that you know just a little bit more about Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Minister's Black Veil, let's move on to this week's feature presentation. The Minister's Black Veil by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The sexton stood on the porch of the Milford Meeting House, pulling lustily at the bell rope. The old people of the village came stooping along the street. Children with bright faces tripped merrily beside their parents, or mimicked a graver gait in conscious dignity of their Sunday clothes. Spruce bachelors looked sidelong at the pretty maidens and fancied that the Sabbath sunshine made them prettier than on weekdays. When the throng had mostly streamed onto the porch, the sexton began to toll the bell, keeping his eye on the Reverend Mr. Hooper's door. The first glimpse of the clergyman's figure was the signal for the bell to cease its summons. "'But what has good Parson Hooper got upon his face?' cried the sexton in astonishment. All within hearing immediately turned about and beheld the semblance of Mr. Hooper, pacing slowly his meditative way toward the meeting-house." With one accord they started, expressing more wonder than if some strange minister were coming to dust the cushions of Mr. Hooper's pulpit. "'Are you sure it is our parson?' inquired Goodman Gray of the sexton. "'Of a certainty it is, Mr. Hooper,' replied the sexton. "'He was to have exchanged pulpits with the parson Schutt of Westbury, but parson Schutt sent to excuse himself yesterday being to preach to a funeral sermon.' The cause of so much amazement may appear sufficiently slight— Mr. Hooper, a gentlemanly person of about thirty, though still a bachelor, was dressed with due clerical neatness, as if a careful wife had starched his band and brushed the weekly dust from his Sunday's garb. There was but one thing remarkable in his appearance. Swathed about his forehead and hanging down over his face so low as to be shaken by his breath, Mr. Hooper had on a black veil. On a nearer view it seemed to consist of two folds of crepe, which entirely concealed his features except the mouth and chin, but probably did not intercept his sight, farther than to give a darkened aspect to all living and inanimate things. With this gloomy shade before him, good Mr. Hooper walked onward at a slow and quiet pace, stooping somewhat and looking on the ground as is customary with abstracted men, yet nodding kindly to those of his parishioners who still waited on the meeting-house steps. But so wonderstruck were they that his greeting— hardly met with a return. "'I can't really feel as if good Mr. Hooper's face was behind that piece of crepe,' said the sexton. "'I don't like it,' muttered an old woman as she hobbled into the meeting-house. "'He has changed himself into something awful, only by hiding his face.' "'Our parson has gone mad!' cried Goodman Gray, following him across the threshold. A rumor of some unaccountable phenomenon had preceded Mr. Hooper into the meeting-house, and set all the congregation astir. Few could refrain from twisting their heads towards the door. Many stood upright and turned directly about, while several little boys clambered upon the seats and came down again with a terrible racket. There was a general bustle, a rustling of the women's gowns and shuffling of the men's feet, greatly at variance with that hushed repose which should attend the entrance of the minister. But Mr. Hooper appeared not to notice the perturbation of his people. 
He entered with an almost noiseless step, bent his head mildly to the pews on each side, and bowed as he passed his oldest parishioner, a white-haired great-grandsire who occupied an armchair in the center of the aisle. It was strange to observe how slowly this venerable man became conscious of something singular in the appearance of his pastor. He seemed not to fully partake of the prevailing wonder till Mr. Hooper had ascended the stairs and showed himself in the pulpit, face to face with his congregation except for the black veil. That mysterious emblem was never once withdrawn. It shook with his measured breath as he gave out the psalm. It threw its obscurity between him and the holy page as he read the scriptures, and while he prayed the veil lay heavily on his uplifted countenance. Did he seek to hide it from the dread being whom he was addressing? Such was the effect of this simple piece of crepe, that more than one woman of delicate nerves was forced to leave the meeting-house. Yet perhaps the pale-faced congregation was almost as fearful a sight to the minister as the black veil to them. Mr. Hooper had the reputation of a good preacher, but not an energetic one. He strove to win his people heavenward by mild persuasive influences rather than to drive them thither by the thunders of the word. The sermon which he now delivered was marked by the same characteristics of style and manner as the general series of his pulpit oratory, but there was something either in the sentiment of the discourse itself or in the imagination of the auditors which made it greatly the most powerful effort that they had ever heard from their pastor's lips. It was tinged rather more darkly than usual with the gentle gloom of Mr. Hooper's temperament. The subject had reference to secret sin— and those sad mysteries which we hide from our nearest and dearest, and would fain conceal from our own consciousness, even forgetting that the omniscient can detect them. A subtle power was breathed into his words. Each member of the congregation, the most innocent girl and the man of hardened breast, felt as if the preacher had crept upon them, behind this awful veil, and discovered their hoarded iniquity of deed or thought. Many spread their clasped hands on their bosoms, there was nothing terrible in what Mr. Hooper said, at least no violence, and yet with every tremor of his melancholy voice the hearers quaked. An unsought pathos came hand in hand with awe. So sensible were the audience of some unwanted attribute in their minister that they longed for a breath of wind to blow aside the veil, almost believing that a stranger's visage would be discovered, though the form, gesture, and voice were those of Mr. Hooper. At the close of the services, the people hurried out with indecorous confusion, eager to communicate their pent-up amazement, and conscious of lighter spirits the moment they lost sight of the black veil. Some gathered in little circles, huddled closely together, with their mouths all whispering in the center. Some went homeward alone, wrapped in silent meditation. Some talked loudly and profaned the Sabbath day with ostentatious laughter. A few shook their sagacious heads, intimating that they could penetrate the mystery, while one or two affirmed that there was no mystery at all, but only that Mr. Hooper's eyes were so weakened by the midnight lamp as to require a shade. After a brief interval, forth came good Mr. Hooper also in the rear of his flock. Turning his veiled face from one group to another, he paid due reverence to the heavy heads, saluted the middle-aged with kind dignity as their friend and spiritual guide, greeted the young with mingled authority and love, and laid his hands on the little children's heads to bless them. Such was always his custom on the Sabbath day. Strange and bewildered looks repaid him for his courtesy. None, as on former occasions, aspired to the honor of walking by their pastor's side. 
Old Squire Saunders, doubtless by an accidental lapse of memory, neglected to invite Mr. Hooper to his table where the good clergyman had been wont to bless the food almost every Sunday since his settlement. He returned, therefore, to the parsonage, and at the moment of closing the door was observed to look back upon the people, all of whom had their eyes fixed upon the minister. A sad smile gleamed faintly from beneath the black veil and flickered about his mouth, glimmering as he disappeared. "'How strange!' said a lady, that a simple black veil, such as any woman might wear on her bonnet, should become such a terrible thing on Mr. Hooper's face. Something must surely be amiss with Mr. Hooper's intellects, observed her husband, the physician of the village. But the strangest part of the affair is the effect of this vagary, even on a sober-minded man like myself. The black veil, though it covers only our pastor's face, throws its influence over his whole person, and makes him ghost-like from head to foot. Do you not feel it so? Truly do I, replied the lady, and I would not be alone with him for the world. I wonder he is not afraid to be alone with himself. Men sometimes are so, said her husband. The afternoon service was attended with similar circumstances. At its conclusion, the bell tolled for the funeral of a young lady. The relatives and friends were assembled in the house, and the more distant acquaintances stood about the door, speaking of the good qualities of the deceased, when their talk was interrupted by the appearance of Mr. Hooper, still covered with his black veil. It was now an appropriate emblem. The clergyman stepped into the room where the corpse was laid, and bent over the coffin to take a last farewell of his deceased parishioner. As he stooped, the veil hung straight down from his forehead, so that if her eyelids had not been closed forever, the dead maiden might have seen his face. Could Mr. Hooper be fearful of her glance? that he so hastily caught back the black veil? A person who watched the interview between the dead and the living scrupled not to affirm that, at the instant when the clergyman's features were disclosed, the corpse had slightly shuddered, rustling the shroud and muslin cap, though the countenance retained the composure of death. A superstitious old woman was the only witness of this prodigy. From the coffin Mr. Hooper passed into the chamber of the mourners, and thence to the head of the staircase to make the funeral prayer. It was a tender and heart-dissolving prayer, full of sorrow, yet so imbued with celestial hopes that the music of a heavenly harp, swept by the fingers of the dead, seemed faintly to be heard among the saddest accents of the minister. The people trembled, though they but darkly understood him, when he prayed that they and himself, and all of the mortal race, might be ready, as he trusted this young maiden had been, for the dreadful hour that should snatch the veil from their faces. The bearers went heavily forth, and the mourners followed, saddening all the street, with the dead before them, and Mr. Hooper in his black veil behind. "'Why do you look back?' said one in the procession to his partner. "'I had a fancy,' replied she, "'that the minister and the maiden's spirit were walking hand in hand.' "'And so had I at that same moment,' said the other. That night the handsomest couple in Milford Village were to be joined in wedlock, Though reckoned a melancholy man, Mr. Hooper had a placid cheerfulness for such occasions, which often excited a sympathetic smile where livelier merriment would have been thrown away. There was no quality of his disposition which made him more beloved than this. The company at the wedding awaited his arrival with impatience, trusting that the strange awe which gathered over him throughout the day would now be dispelled. But such was not the result. When Mr. Hooper came, the first thing that their eyes rested on was the same horrible black veil, which had added deeper gloom to the funeral, and could portend nothing but evil to the wedding. 
Such was its immediate effect on the guests that a cloud seemed to have rolled duskly from beneath the black crepe and dimmed the light of the candles. The bridal pair stood up before the minister, but the bride's cold fingers quivered in the tremulous hand of the bridegroom, and her death-like paleness caused a whisper that the maiden who had been buried a few hours before was come from her grave to be married. If ever another wedding were so dismal, it was that famous one where they told the wedding knell. After performing the ceremony, Mr. Hooper raised a glass of wine to his lips, wishing happiness to the new married couple in a strain of mild pleasantry that ought to have brightened the features of the guests, like a cheerful gleam from the hearth. At that instant, catching a glimpse of his figure in the looking-glass, the black veil involved his own spirit in the horror with which it overwhelmed all others. His frame shuddered, his lips grew white, he spilt the untasted wine upon the carpet and rushed forth into the darkness, for the earth, too, had on her black veil. The next day the whole village of Milford talked of little else than Parson Hooper's black veil, that and the mystery concealed behind it supplied a topic for discussion between acquaintances meeting in the street and good women gossiping at their open windows. It was the first item of news that the tavern-keeper told to his guests. The children babbled of it on their way to school. One imitative little imp covered his face with an old black handkerchief, thereby so affrighting his playmates that the panic seized himself, and he well-nigh lost his wits by his own waggery. It was remarkable that of all the busybodies and impertinent people in the parish, not one ventured to put the plain question to Mr. Hooper wherefore he did this thing. Hitherto, whenever there appeared the slightest call for such interference, he had never lacked advisers nor shown himself averse to be guided by their judgment. If he erred at all, it was by so painful a degree of self-distrust that even the mildest censure would lead him to consider an indifferent action as a crime— Yet, though so well acquainted with his amiable weakness, no individual among his parishioners chose to make the black veil a subject of friendly remonstrance. There was a feeling of dread, neither plainly confessed nor carefully concealed, which caused each to shift the responsibility upon another, till at length it was found expedient to send a deputation of the church in order to deal with Mr. Hooper about the mystery before it should grow into a scandal. Never did an embassy so ill discharge its duties. The minister received them with friendly courtesy, but became silent after they were seated, leaving to his visitors the whole burden of introducing their important business. The topic, it might be supposed, was obvious enough. There was the black veil, swathed around Mr. Hooper's forehead, and concealing every feature above his placid mouth, on which at times they could perceive the glimmering of a melancholy smile. But that piece of crape to their imagination seemed to hang down before his heart, the symbol of a fearful secret between him and them. Were the black veil but cast aside, they might speak freely of it, but not till then. Thus they sat a considerable time, speechless, confused, and shrinking uneasily from Mr. Hooper's eye, which they felt to be fixed upon them with an invisible glance. Finally the deputies returned, abashed, to their constituents, pronouncing the matter too weighty to be handled except by a council of the churches, if indeed it might not require a general synod. But there was one person in the village, unappalled by the awe with which the black veil had impressed all beside herself. When the deputies returned without an explanation, or even venturing to demand one, she, with the calm energy of her character, determined to chase away the strange cloud that appeared to be settling around Mr. Hooper, every moment more darkly than before. As his plighted wife, it should be her privilege to know what the black veil concealed. 
At the minister's first visit, therefore, she entered upon the subject with a direct simplicity, which made the task easier for both him and her. After he had seated himself, she fixed her eyes steadfastly upon the veil, but could discern nothing of the dreadful gloom that had so overawed the multitude. It was but a double fold of crepe, hanging down from his forehead to his mouth and slightly stirring with his breath. "'No,' she said aloud and smiling, "'there is nothing terrible in this piece of crepe except that it hides a face which I am always glad to look upon. Come, good sir, let the sun shine from behind the cloud. First lay aside your black veil, then tell me why you put it on.' Mr. Hooper's smile glimmered faintly. "'There is an hour to come,' said he, "'when all of us shall cast aside our veils. Take it not amiss, beloved friend, if I wear this piece of crepe till then.' "'Your words are a mystery, too,' returned the young lady. "'Take away the veil from them, at least.' "'Elizabeth, I will,' said he, "'so far as my vow may suffer me. "'Know, then, this veil is a type and a symbol, "'and I am bound to wear it ever, both in light and darkness, "'in solitude and before the gaze of multitudes, "'as with strangers, so with my familiar friends. "'No mortal eye will see it withdrawn.' This dismal shade must separate me from the world. Even you, Elizabeth, can never come behind it. What grievous affliction hath befallen you, she earnestly inquired, that you should thus darken your eyes forever? If it be a sign of mourning, replied Mr. Hooper, I, perhaps, like most other mortals, have sorrows dark enough to be typified by a black veil. "'But what if the world will not believe that it is a type of innocent sorrow?' urged Elizabeth. "'Beloved and respected as you are, there may be whispers that you hide your face under the consciousness of secret sin. For the sake of your holy office, do away this scandal!' The color rose into her cheeks as she intimated the nature of the rumors that were already abroad in the village, but Mr. Hooper's mildness did not forsake him. He even smiled again, that same sad smile which always appeared like a faint glimmering of light proceeding from the obscurity beneath the veil. "'If I hide my face for sorrow, there is cause enough,' he merely replied, "'and if I cover it for a secret sin, what mortal might not do the same?' And with this gentle but unconquerable obstinacy did he resist all her entreaties. At length Elizabeth sat silent. For a few moments she appeared lost in thought, considering probably what new methods might be tried to withdraw her lover from so dark a fantasy, which, if it had no other meaning, was perhaps a symptom of a mental disease. Though a firmer character than his own, the tears rolled down her cheeks. But, in an instant, as it were, a new feeling took the place of sorrow. Her eyes were fixed insensibly upon the black veil, when, like a sudden twilight in the air, its terrors fell around her. She arose, and stood trembling before him. "'And do you feel it, then, at last?' said he mournfully. She made no reply, but covered her eyes with her hand, and turned to leave the room. He rushed forward and caught her arm. "'Have patience with me, Elizabeth,' he cried passionately. "'Do not desert me, though this veil must be between us here on earth.' Be mine, and hereafter there shall be no veil over my face, no darkness between our souls. It is but a mortal veil. It is not for eternity. Oh, you know not how lonely I am and how frightened to be alone behind my black veil. 
Do not leave me in this miserable obscurity forever. Lift the veil but once, and look me in the face, said she. Never. It cannot be, replied Mr. Hooper. Then farewell, said Elizabeth. She withdrew her arm from his grasp and slowly departed, pausing at the door to give one long, shuddering gaze that seemed almost to penetrate the mystery of the black veil, but even amid his grief Mr. Hooper smiled to think that only a material emblem had separated him from happiness, though the horrors which it shadowed forth must be drawn darkly between the fondest of lovers. From that time no attempts were made to remove Mr. Hooper's black veil, or by a direct appeal to discover the secret which it was supposed to hide. By persons who claimed a superiority to popular prejudice, it was reckoned merely an eccentric whim, such as often mingles with the sober actions of men otherwise rational and tinges them all with its own semblance of insanity. But with the multitude, good Mr. Hooper was irreparably a bugbear. He could not walk the street with any peace of mind, so conscious was he that the gentle and timid would turn aside to avoid him, and that others would make it a point of hardihood to throw themselves in his way. The impertinence of the latter class compelled him to give up his customary walk at sunset to the burial ground, for when he leaned pensively over the gate there would always be faces behind the gravestones, peeping at his black veil. A fable went the rounds that the stare of the dead people drove him thence. It grieved him to the very depth of his kind heart to observe how the children fled from his approach, breaking up their merriest sports while his melancholy figure was yet afar off. Their instinctive dread caused him to feel more strongly than aught else that a preternatural horror was interwoven with the threads of the black crepe. In truth, its own antipathy to the veil was known to be so great that he never willingly passed before a mirror, nor stooped to drink at a still fountain, lest in its peaceful bosom he should be affrighted by himself. This was what gave plausibility to the whispers, that Mr. Hooper's conscience tortured him for some great crime, too horrible to be entirely concealed, or otherwise than so obscurely intimated. Thus, from beneath the black veil there rolled a cloud into the sunshine, an ambiguity of sin or sorrow which enveloped the poor minister so that love or sympathy could never reach him. It was said that ghost and fiend consorted with him there. With self-shudderings and outward terrors he walked continually in its shadow, groping darkly within his own soul or gazing through a medium that saddened the whole world. Even the lawless wind, it was believed, respected his dreadful secret and never blew aside the veil. But still good Mr. Hooper sadly smiled at the pale visages of the worldly throng as he passed by. Among all its bad influences, the black veil had the one desirable effect of making its wearer a very efficient clergyman. By the aid of his mysterious emblem, for there was no other apparent cause, he became a man of awful power over souls that were in agony for sin. His converts always regarded him with a dread peculiar to themselves, affirming, though but figuratively, that before he brought them to the celestial light they had been with him behind the black veil. Its gloom, indeed, enabled him to sympathize with all dark affections. Dying sinners cried aloud for Mr. Hooper, and would not yield their breath till he appeared, though ever as he stooped to whisper consolation they shuddered at the veiled face so near their own. Such were the terrors of the black veil, even when death had bared his visage. 
Strangers came long distances to attend service at his church with the mere idle purpose of gazing at his figure because it was forbidden them to behold his face, but many were made to quake ere they departed. Once during Governor Belcher's administration, Mr. Hooper was appointed to preach the election sermon. Covered with his black veil, he stood before the chief magistrate, the council, and the representatives, and wrought so deep an impression that the legislative measures of that year were characterized by all the gloom and piety of our earliest ancestral sway. In this manner, Mr. Hooper spent a long life, irreproachable in outward act, yet shrouded in dismal suspicions, kind and loving, though unloved, and dimly feared, a man apart from men, shunned in their health and joy, but ever summoned to their aid in mortal anguish. As years wore on, shedding their snows above his sable veil, he acquired a name throughout the New England churches, and they called him Father Hooper. Nearly all his parishioners, who were of a mature age when he was settled, had been borne away by many a funeral. He had one congregation in the church, and a more crowded one in the churchyard, and having wrought so late into the evening and done his work so well, it was now good Father Hooper's turn to rest. Several parsons were visible by the shaded candlelight in the death chamber of the old clergyman. Natural connections he had none, but there was the decorously grave, though unmoved, physician, seeking only to mitigate the last pangs of the patient whom he could not save. There were the deacons and the other eminently pious members of his church. There also was the Reverend Mr. Clark of Westbury, a young and zealous divine who had ridden in haste to pray by the bedside of the expiring minister. There was the nurse, no hired handmaiden of death, but one whose calm affection had endured this long in secrecy and solitude amid the chill of age and would not perish even at the dying hour. Who but Elizabeth? And there lay the hoary head of the good father Hooper upon the death pillow, with the black veil still swathed about his brow and reaching down over his face, so that each more difficult gasp of his faint breath caused it to stir. All through life that piece of crepe had hung between him and the world. It had separated him from cheerful brotherhood and woman's love, and kept him in the saddest of all prisons, his own heart. And still it lay upon his face, as if to deepen the gloom of his darksome chamber, and shade him from the sunshine of eternity. For some time previous his mind had been confused, wavering doubtfully between the past and the present, and hovering forward, as it were, at intervals, into the indistinctness of the world to come. There had been feverish turns which tossed him from side to side and wore away what little strength he had. But in his most convulsive struggles, and in the wildest vagaries of his intellect, when no other thought retained its sober influence, he still showed an awful solicitude lest the black veil should slip aside. Even if his bewildered soul could have forgotten there was a faithful woman at his pillow, who with averted eyes would have covered that aged face which she had last beheld in the comeliness of manhood. At length the death-stricken old man lay quietly in the torpor of mental and bodily exhaustion, with an imperceptible pulse and breath that grew fainter and fainter, except when a long, deep, and irregular inspiration seemed to prelude the flight of his spirit. The minister of Westbury approached the bedside. "'Venerable Father Hooper,' said he, "'the moment of your release is at hand. Are you ready for the lifting of the veil that shuts in time from eternity?' Father Hooper, 
at first replied merely by a feeble motion of his head. Then, apprehensive, perhaps, that his meaning might be doubtful, he exerted himself to speak. Yea, said he, in faint accents, my soul hath a patient weariness until that veil be lifted. And it is fitting, resumed Reverend Mr. Clark, that a man so given to prayer, of such blameless example, holy indeed, and thought so far as mortal judgment may pronounce, is it fitting that a father in the church should leave a shadow on his memory that may seem to blacken a life so pure? I pray you, my venerable brother, let not this thing be. Suffer us to be gladdened by your triumphant aspect as you go to your reward. Before the veil of eternity be lifted, let me cast aside this black veil from your face. And thus speaking, the Reverend Mr. Clark bent forward to reveal the mystery of so many years. But, exerting a sudden energy that made the beholders stand aghast, Father Hooper snatched both hands from beneath the bedclothes and pressed them strongly on the black veil, resolute to struggle if the minister of Westbury would contend with the dying man. Never! cried the veiled clergyman. On earth, never! A dark old man, exclaimed the affrighted minister. With what horrible crime upon your soul are you now passing to the judgment? Father Hooper's breath heaved. It rattled in his throat, but with a mighty effort grasping forward with his hands, he caught hold of life and held it back till he should speak. He even raised himself in bed, and there he sat, shivering with the arms of death around him, while the black veil hung down, awful at that last moment, in the gathered terrors of a lifetime. And yet the faint, sad smile so often there now seemed to glimmer from its obscurity and linger on Father Hooper's lips. "'Why do you tremble at me alone?' cried he, turning his veiled face round the circle of pale spectators. "'Tremble also at each other!' Have men avoided me, and women shown no pity, and children screamed and fled only for my black veil? What but the mystery which it obscurely typifies has made this piece of crepe so awful? When the friend shows his inmost heart to his friend, the lover to his best beloved, when man does not vainly shrink from the eye of his creator— loathsomely treasuring up the secret of his sin, then deem me a monster, for the symbol beneath which I have lived and die. I look around me, and lo, on every visage, a black veil. While his auditors shrank back from one another, in mutual affright, Father Hooper fell back upon his pillow, a veiled corpse, with a faint smile lingering on his lips. Still veiled, they laid him in his coffin, and a veiled corpse, they bore him to the grave. The grass of many years has sprung up and withered on that grave. The burial stone is moss-grown, and good Mr. Hooper's face is dust. But awful is still the thought that it moldered beneath the black veil.
that this story was anthologized along with several other of Hawthorne's stories that had been published earlier in periodicals in a collection called Twice Told Tales. And in that edition, there was an interesting footnote to this story. It reads as such. Another clergyman in New England, Mr. Joseph Moody of York, Maine, who died about eighty years since, made himself remarkable by the same eccentricity that is here related of the Reverend Mr. Hooper. In his case, however, the symbol had a different import. In early life he had accidentally killed a beloved friend, and from that day till the hour of his own death he hid his face from men. And so here again we see Hawthorne's dark romanticism, where our friend Mr. Hooper, from behind his literal black veil, criticizes his congregation and perhaps even all of humanity for living behind their figurative black veils. Now remember, next month is October, and I'll be participating in All the Horror, an event in which several podcasts are collaborating to bring you at least one horror-themed podcast every day throughout the month. Now my episodes will continue to post in the regular feed, so no action is required on your part to get this here show, but I'll also be a guest on at least two other shows, and I'm working on a third right now as well. I'll get you the air dates once I know them, but in the meantime, we'll be setting up a playlist on Podchaser. Once that's set up, I'll post a link on the social media, and you can go there and add the RSS feed into your podcast player. If you've never added an RSS feed to your podcast player, just go ahead and Google how to do that, and it's a pretty simple process. Though the process can differ a little bit depending on what podcast player you use, but it's a generally a fairly simple process. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, I told you earlier that you can find the turn of the screw on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash syypodcast, and next week I'll be bringing you another story by that same author, right here on the main feed. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours, soon to be Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you've got a request for a short story, or if you've written your own short story that you want to submit to the show, you can do that through any of the social media channels, or you can email me at syypodcast at gmail.com. 